Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is part two of the Irish War of Independence series. This podcast focuses in on the 1916 Rising and the aftermath of the revolt, which proved a crucial milestone in the road to war. Additional research was by the archivist and historian Sam McGrath. The sound is by Jason Looney. Additional narrations are by Aidan Crow and Therese Murray. And the artwork for the series is by Keith Hines. The show is funded by listeners on Patreon. As a patron of the show, you can get previews of ad-free episodes of each podcast episode guides and then in two weeks time I'll be hosting the first Q&A with Dr Brian Hanley of the History Department of Trinity College Dublin. These will be exclusively available for patrons only. You can participate in this and help the show by signing up on Patreon today at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. If you're enjoying the series it's worth checking out the latest items I've added to the shop. These are posters from the revolutionary period, the focus of this series. These feature people like Michael Collins, Countess Markovich, along with recruitment posters for the Irish volunteers. You can find these at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. That's irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. I'll put links in the show notes below. Finally, as I mentioned last week, don't forget to check out my socials at Irish History. That's all one word on Instagram and Twitter. I post pictures of people featured in each episode there. It's a great name to put a face to the name of some of the people who have featured throughout the series. On Saturday, April 29th, 1916, a week of savage violence came to an end in Dublin. As smoke lingered over the city and many of its iconic buildings lay in ruins, the citizens could finally take stock of what had befallen their city. It had begun the previous Monday when armed Republican rebels occupied strategic locations across Dublin, proclaiming Ireland an independent republic from their headquarters in the GPO in the city centre. 
Many Dubliners didn't take the rebels or their actions seriously. However, in the following 24 hours, the situation was transformed as the British army, initially caught off guard, began to surround the rebel-held areas and additional troops were shipped in from Britain. As the week progressed, the ferocity of the British reaction had surprised even the most ardent critics of the Empire. A gunboat was brought up the River Liffey and its ordnance were trained on rebel outposts. The damage this and other large weapons wrought on the city centre was compounded by fires started by the rebels themselves in a bid to prevent the army getting too close to their positions. By the weekend, the city centre was transformed into a war zone. The civilian population paid a heavy price. Among the most notorious incidents, the South Staffordshire Regiment of the British Army rampaged through the North King Street area of Dublin, killing numerous civilians. Among the victims of this massacre was the 30-year-old Patrick Beelan from Castlecomer, who had worked as a child in the Wandlesford's family mines mentioned in last week's episode. Patrick had moved to Dublin in search of safer work and by April 1916 was working as a bar manager. He was among those killed by the army in the North King Street massacre. His body was found buried in a shallow grave in the cellar of the pub where he worked. After just six days of violence, casualties on both sides and civilians had reached nearly 500 dead and thousands wounded. The rebels finally surrendered on the Saturday, realising that all was lost and that continuing their struggle would only contribute to further civilian suffering. In the immediate aftermath, as the British authorities retook control of the city, they found themselves in a strong position. While the city was devastated, it appeared the rebellion, if anything, had backfired on the rebels. Rather than build support for their cause, many Dubliners were outraged that their city lay in ruins. As the rebels were taken into captivity, they were jeered by crowds and even pelted with rotten vegetables from some quarters. However, the story of the 1916 Rising was in many ways only beginning with the rebel surrender. In the days and weeks that followed the revolt, the British authorities, and particularly the army, set about crushing the revolutionary movement. But this completely backfired. Indeed, their actions set the stage for a dramatic reversal in public opinion for the rebels. This began with the trials of those captured during the fighting. Having declared martial law, the army tried the rebels in field courts martial that were little more than kangaroo courts. Held in camera with no media or members of the public present, these courts were presided over by three officers with no legal background. They handed down large numbers of death sentences, 90 in total, to those involved. While the vast majority of these were commuted, the execution of 14 rebels in Dublin, beginning on May 3rd, with Patrick Pearce, Thomas McDonough and Thomas Clark, caused outrage in Ireland. Even for those who believed some executions were justified, they could not ignore the blatant injustice behind some of those who were shot. On May 4th, for example, William Pearce was executed. He had only played a minor role in the Rising and was singled out because he was the brother of Patrick Pearce, who had been a leading figure. John McBride, the husband of Ma Gon, was also executed in an act that seemed to many to be motivated because he had led a group of Irish volunteers to fight for the Boers against the British in South Africa 14 years earlier. Although a participant, McBride had not been a senior figure in the Rising. These executions were accompanied by large-scale military operations across the island in the days following the Rising, which many interpreted as an attempt to terrorise the population at large. In Cork, the Republican Liam de Roeste noted in his diary, Thousands of troops pass through Cork City today. Horse, foot and artillery. 
object and terrorism probably. Further to this, large-scale arrests began which saw thousands incarcerated, many of whom had had no involvement in the rising, and this only served to further alienate public opinion. Indeed, their imprisonment proved to be a gift to the rebel movement. The planning of the rebellion had been chaotic and confusing, and in the immediate aftermath it left deep divisions within the Republican movement over who was to blame for the failure of the rising and whether it should have gone ahead at all. However, the widespread arrests and imprisonments would help to unify the rebels and their allies. Indeed, within 12 months, the Republican movement was stronger than ever. While it proved a pivotal event in the lead-up to the War of Independence, the planning for the 1916 Rising had been nothing short of chaotic. The insurrection had been the brainchild of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, better known as the Fenians, who were committed to achieving Irish independence through an armed uprising. To make any kind of impact, this small organisation needed the support of the much larger Irish volunteers, whose political views were less clear-cut. The volunteers were an armed militia founded in 1913. Initially, their aim was to support home rule through force as opposed to fighting for full independence. However, it had been radicalised by the First World War. At the outbreak of the conflict, the leadership of the home rule movement had encouraged Irish men to enlist in the British army and fight. This horrified the more radical members of the Irish volunteers, including its chief of staff, Owen MacNeill. While the volunteers would ultimately lose 90% of their membership over the issue, it left a more radical minority that still numbered around 10,000 men. While supportive of Home Rule, many of these people were also open to the idea of full independence as well. That said, convincing them to participate in a rising was another matter entirely. The Chief of Staff of the Volunteers, Owen MacNeill, believed a rebellion should only go ahead if it had some chance of success or if it was an act of self-defence, if the British authorities were going to suppress the volunteers. Recognising they needed Owen MacNeill's backing and support, members of the Irish Republican Brotherhood forged a document that claimed the British authorities were indeed about to suppress the volunteers. This, along with a shipment of weapons due from Germany, convinced MacNeill to back the rising. While MacNeill would realise he had been hoodwinked by the forged document, he nevertheless decided to support the rising. However, when news arrived that the shipment of German weapons had been sunk off the Kerry coast, he withdrew his support, arguing that any revolt was doomed to fail in these circumstances. In the final 24 hours, MacNeill dispatched people across the country to tell his volunteers to stand down. He also took out advertisements in newspapers to the same effect. While the rising could not start on Easter Sunday as planned, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, along with Common Naman, a women's organisation, the Citizen Army, a socialist militia, and the youth organisations pushed ahead the following day, Easter Monday. In the aftermath of the Rising, the actions and reactions of both groups, those who had tried to stop what they saw as a doomed revolt and those intent on making a stand, threatened to split the movement. Both naturally blamed the other for the outcome. However, it was the authorities who took the first steps towards unifying this division when they arrested Owen MacNeill and sentenced him to life in prison, even though he had not had any involvement in the revolt and had tried to call off the rising. In the coming months, the fact he shared in the repression would become significant. However, tensions around Owen MacNeill's decision to call off the revolt was not the only cleft in the movement. 
In the immediate aftermath of the Rising, it appeared major geographical splits in the Republican movement might also emerge. Due to the confusing nature of the plans, Dublin had been the only major population centre to rise in revolt. In Dublin, the rebels felt their comrades elsewhere had let them down. A sensible strategy by the authorities would have seen them exploit this division. Instead, they did precisely the opposite and helped forge an even stronger revolutionary movement. To understand this, we need to move south and look at what had happened in Cork during the 1916 Rising. Plans for an uprising in Cork had failed abysmally. However, this was through no fault of the rebels in the county. Over 1,000 Republicans in the city had mobilised on the original day of the Rising, Easter Sunday, April 23rd. However, they had been paralysed by indecision given the chaotic and confusing start to events in Dublin. When the Rising in Dublin actually started on Monday, April 24th, volunteers in the city, confused as to what was happening, met at a hall on Shears Street in the city. This led to a tense standoff as the British Army surrounded the building. During that fateful week, as Dublin was consumed by violence, Cork remained largely peaceful, if extremely tense. Ultimately, what proved to be a demoralising deal was forged between the rebels and the British authorities. Using intermediaries of the Bishop of Cork, Daniel Colohan, and the Lord Mayor of the city, Thomas Butterfield, the rebels were convinced to hand over their weapons to the Lord Mayor on the promise they would be returned at a later date. The rebel leader in the city, Thomas McCurtain, had little choice but to accept an agreement, even if he suspected the British authorities would never abide by it once they had retaken full control of the situation. Liam de Roche, a Republican in the city, who kept a diary of these events, reflected, According to the reports, there were threats that if the city volunteers did not give up their arms quietly, the city would be shelled. It is stated that the military have taken possession of the hall in Shear Street and machine guns placed in positions overlooking it. Effective resistance was, apparently, out of the question. The alternative to useless struggle was the surrender of arms. It is also stated that if the volunteers give up their arms quietly, no further action would be taken against them. The whole affair left resentment and a sense of failure in Cork. Liam de Rocha again echoed this in his diary. Dublin was left practically alone. Cork failed, over which many heart burnings. Conversely, many of those who had participated in the Rising in Dublin did not fully appreciate why Cork had failed to rise. While this opened the possibility of a major division between Dublin and Cork, as in the case with Owen MacNeill, large-scale arrests by the British authorities would help overcome this potential division. Thousands of houses were raided, not only in Dublin, but across the island as the British authorities rounded up anyone they suspected of being involved. In early May, Liam de Roista in Cork put the figure of those dead or imprisoned at four or 5,000. This was an exaggeration, but in total, 3,430 men and 79 women were in captivity. The shared experience of their captivity for many of these prisoners not only allowed them to resolve their differences emerging from the Rising, but also forged a revolutionary movement that would go on to fight the War of Independence. After the Rising, around 1,800 people were served with internment orders under something called the Defence of the Realm Act, which had been brought in in 1914 at the outbreak of the First World War. This was often referred to under the acronym DORA. This had seen those rounded up in Ireland first transferred to prisons across England and Scotland, and then the majority were transferred to one internment camp at Frongoch, 
in the northwest of Wales. The conditions at Frongoch were appalling. The camp had originally been erected to house German prisoners of war from the First World War, but they had been relocated to make way for the Irish internees. The Frongoch camp was split into two sections. In the northern section, the prisoners were held in wooden huts, while in the southern section, an old whisky distillery had been converted into a makeshift prison. The conditions were dire, frequently too hot during the day and very cold at night. The food was appalling. In one incident, a doctor deemed the meat for the prisoners as unfit for human consumption. Escape was next to impossible when one internee, Daniel Dabbitt, did break free from the camp in August 1916. He was inevitably recaptured two days later. He couldn't get far without money or transport. However, despite this, the internees in Frongoch used their time there well. Led by a corps of hardened Republican activists, the prisoners took part in military drills and parades. Their spare time was filled with afternoon classes seven days a week on a variety of topics, including Irish, German, history, French and maths. It also allowed them to resolve the divisions that had emerged due to the rising and forge a new, common experience. Sean Prendergast, later a captain of the 1st Battalion of the Dublin Brigade of the IRA, who had fought in the rising, recalled, The fact too that men who did not participate in the rising were sharing the rigours of internment with men who did participate added a certain spice of piquancy to the proceedings of mingling the might-have-beens with the has-beens. So it was, however, that men who had fought in the rising and those who did not so fight held in a way common ground as prisoners. Indeed, in Frangoch, some future leaders of the Republican movement were coming to the fore, steeled by these experiences, most notably a Cork man who will feature prominently in the series, Michael Collins. Through the summer of 1916, the authorities began to process the prisoners and those who proved to have had little involvement in the rising itself were released. By August, over 1,100 prisoners had left Frongoch. Many of the remaining prisoners, over 500 in total, were released in December. That month of December 1916 also saw a major political change in Britain, which would have a huge impact on the fate of the remaining prisoners in other British jails and indeed wider Irish politics. This saw David Lloyd George replace Herbert Asquith as the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Lloyd George focused on an aggressive war strategy in the First World War and viewed Ireland as a distraction. Through early 1917, Ireland and what was called the Irish Question was discussed less and less frequently at Cabinet. However, in the summer of 1917, Lloyd George organised what was called the Irish Convention, which facilitated negotiations between the Irish Home Rule Party and Irish Unionists to discuss Ireland's future place within the British Empire. While well, full independence was not even entertained, this convention was supposedly going to resolve the major questions about Ireland's future that had plagued politics in Britain and Ireland for well over a decade. There were three options on the table. The island could remain as it was. It could adopt home rule or self-governance within the empire or possibly pursue a third option where the island would be partitioned with different parts adopting different paths. While this convention would drag on for months to no great effect, in advance of the talks beginning, over 150 prisoners from the 1916 Rising were granted an amnesty in the hope this would, as Andrew Boner Law, Chancellor of the Exchequer, said, create an atmosphere of harmony and goodwill. However, Boner Law had underestimated the impact these prisoners would have once released. When they arrived back in Ireland, far from building an atmosphere of harmony and goodwill, they began to foment dissent in Ireland. 
Furthermore, when these prisoners who wanted complete independence returned to Ireland, they found their ideas had grown in popularity. Indeed, very quickly, the Republican movement, demanding full independence, would sweep aside the Home Rule movement, which had dominated nationalist politics in Ireland for nearly four decades. The homecoming of one of the most famous prisoners from the Rising captured this change in events that took place in Dublin over one weekend. Constance Georgine Gorbuth had been one of the most unlikely of rebels. She had been born into a wealthy landowning Sligo family. She had been presented before Queen Victoria and educated in London and Paris. She married a Polish count in 1900 and changed her name, becoming known as Countess Markiewicz. Despite this privileged background, she defied expectations, becoming more radical as she grew older. A feminist, she embraced militant republicanism and socialism in her 30s. As the most prominent woman involved in the Rising, she had, like other leading figures, been sentenced to death in a court-martial. This had only been commuted because the British government feared a backlash if they executed a woman. Instead, she was sentenced to life imprisonment. Although she would only serve about a year of the sentence, her experience was more difficult than that of her male comrades. After December 1916, she was the only Irish political prisoner in Aylesbury Jail. Released under an amnesty in 1917, she arrived back to a much-changed Dublin. Indeed, when she and the other rebels had been marched away after the Rising, they had been taunted and jeered by crowds. This had changed completely when she returned. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When Constance arrived in Dublin on the 21st of June, 1917, the Irish writer, Catherine Tynan, witnessed the celebrations in her honour. Dublin is indeed a place of surprises. Thursday evening, Madame Markovitch was queen of the city. From four in the afternoon, the patient queues began to gather in Westland Row, awaiting the arrival of the boat train with the people's heroine. There was a notable absence of the mere sightseer. Looking at the crowd, it was plain that it was a passionate pilgrimage. Of course, there was the ubiquitous boy, scaling lampposts, perched dizzily on the spiked railings, seizing every point of vantage, no matter how perilous. There was, of course, the intrepid Dublin mother with the eternal baby who was in the movement from its birth. There were great numbers of men of all ages, respectably dressed artisans or small clerk class, very little of the slum. 
The Republican flag waved everywhere, borne generally by girls. One flicked hers in the face of an immovably good-tempered policeman. There were soldiers in reserve, kept prudently out of sight. It was 6.30 before the train came, after many disappointments. There was a motorcar standing close to the exit from the station by which Madame Markovitch would come, a chauffeur in charge. Before she emerged, while the roars of the crowd began to ascend, growing in volume, he took off his chauffeur's livery and appeared in the uniform of an Irish volunteer. Madame was taken from the motorcar and chaired. She seemed to me to be standing up, but I was told she was sitting down. She was wearing a blue gown, which became her mightily. The last time she was here, she wore a volunteer's uniform like many of her men. While Constance Markovitch's welcome in Dublin embodied the rising star of Irish republicanism, the following morning, another, more sombre affair took place a few streets away in the pro-cathedral that embodied the decline of the Republicans' political rivals, the Home Rule Movement. This was the memorial mass for William Redmond, who had been killed while serving in the British Army in the First World War. As well as a soldier, Redmond was an MP for the constituency of Clare East for over two decades and the brother of the Irish Home Rule Party leader, John Redmond. Catherine Tynan, who also attended this event, contrasted this with what she had witnessed at Westland Row the previous evening. This morning there was another crowd waiting. Not quite so patiently, perhaps, outside the pro-cathedral in Marlborough Street for the opening of the doors which will admit people to the requiem from Major Redmond. There is a crowd on the street beyond the railings waiting to see the notabilities arrive. Perhaps it hardly appears a spectacle to the crowd, this stately requiem, robbed of its central figure, that central figure lying under the clay of French Flanders. It is a very motley crowd, in the privileged places as well as in the seats of the lowly. All the notabilities of Dublin are in the church, the law, the administrative offices, the army, Everybody who is anybody in life of Dublin is there. The Lord Lieutenant was represented, and the Dublin Corporation was there, and the law courts were closed so that the judges might attend. The Commander-in-Chief was there with all his staff, and many young soldiers who must have had poignant and tender thought for the good comrade who was also so excellent a playfellow. For Willie Redmond, gay as was tender and courageous to the end, as Catherine Tynan moved to finish her piece, she concluded, Well, well, Willie Redmond was one of the fortunate persons whom all the world loves. Not even the bitterness of the politics of contemporary Ireland has touched him. The requiem was almost a great demonstration of love and respect. The rulers of the land were there, but so also were the poor, for I sat among them. While Willie Redmond was popular on a personal level, there was no question that support for his politics and worldview was ebbing away. The presence of representatives of the increasingly unpopular Lord Lieutenant, the chief British official on the island, and the commander-in-chief of the British Army at the Mass for Willie reinforced this. In blunt terms, Willie Redmond represented an old world that had existed prior to the First World War and the 1916 Rising. Constance Markovitch and her militant Republican politics represented the future. This would be illustrated clearly when the by-election for Willie Redmond's parliamentary seat of Clare East was held in July 1917. Indeed, through 1917, four by-elections would take place in Ireland. And before we look at the key contest in Clare East, 
and the others, we need to introduce an organisation that will be central to the story, but not mentioned so far, the political party, Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin had been founded in 1905 by Arthur Griffith. While the name means we ourselves, the party's early politics were neither separatist nor very radical. Griffith was a supporter of home rule, although he believed Irish people needed to be more militant in their approach than the strategy advocated by the mainstream Home Rule Party. His organisation remained at the periphery of Irish politics until the 1916 Rising. Although Griffith did not participate and had supported Owen McNeill's attempt to cancel the Rising, the poorly informed British authorities and media began to call the Rising the Sinn Féin Rebellion. In the coming weeks, the term Sinn Féin became interchangeable with the rebels. In early 1917, this case of mistaken identity would actually become reality. February 1917 saw the first of four by-elections held in Ireland in the constituency of North Roscommon. There, Irish separatists and sympathisers with the rebels put forward George Noble Plunkett, known as Count Plunkett, and father of the executed 1916 leader, Joseph Mary Plunkett, as a candidate. Given large numbers of prisoners had been released at Christmas, they went to the constituency to support a man they felt held similar views to them. Despite having next to no political experience, their energy paid off when Plunkett took the seat. This would prove a pivotal experience. Many of the rebels who saw themselves as soldiers had been distrustful of politics, but now they saw the advantages it offered. They knew they needed to develop more political support for a future uprising, and they quickly identified Sinn Féin as a vehicle for this, and large numbers began to join the party. Within three months, they were presented with another opportunity when a second by-election was called in South Longford. On this occasion, Joe McGuinness, a veteran of the 1916 Rising, who was still incarcerated in Lewes Prison, was selected, although many prominent figures in prison, including leaders like Eamon de Valera and indeed McGuinness himself, were opposed to the strategy. McGuinness won the contest by the smallest of margins, less than 40 votes. However, nonetheless, it was a victory and it served to further highlight the advantage of the electoral process for Republicans. The summer of 1917 brought the greatest electoral test they faced yet when a by-election was held for Willie Redmond's seat of Clare East. Redmond had been elected to Parliament in 1892 in the constituency and held it until his death. In the opening years of the 20th century, he embodied the dominance of the Home Rule Party in many areas of Ireland. He had been returned unopposed in four straight elections. However, the decision of home rulers like Willie Redmond to enthusiastically support the British war effort in the First World War had proved disastrous. This had been compounded by their reaction to the 1916 Rising. Willie Redmond's brother John, while appealing for clemency for the leaders of the Rising, had told the House of Commons on May the 3rd, the day Patrick Pearce was executed. This outbreak happily seems to be over. It has been dealt with firmness, which is not only right, but it was the duty of the government to so deal with it. They were wedded to an increasingly unpopular war and were seen by many to be ambiguous about the British response to the 1916 Rising. The Home Rule Party put forward Patrick Lynch, a barrister, as their candidate to hold the seat. In normal circumstances, Lynch would be expected to easily take a seat that the party had held for over two decades, particularly given the previous MP had died tragically in the war. However, the Republican movement coalescing around Sinn Féin, a small but rapidly growing party, put forward Eamon de Valera, who had just been released from prison in England, to contest the election. De Valera, known as Dev, 
although born in New York, was a Clare man, and most importantly, he was the highest-ranking survivor of the 1916 Rising. A charismatic and dynamic individual, still only in his mid-30s at the time, represented the new, younger, radical generation of Irish activists. This contrasted with his opponent, Patrick Lynch, who was in his 50s. The Republican movement ran an energetic campaign with de Valera canvassing in military uniform with the slogan, A Vote for Ireland, A Nation, A Vote Against Conscription, A Vote Against Partition, A Vote for Ireland's Language and for Ireland's Ideals and Civilization. His rival, Patrick Lynch, was attacked for his close relationship with the authorities and the fact that he was a barrister. One Sinn Féin activist mocked him, claiming, He has defended one half of the murderers in Clare and is related to the other half. The election was marred by violence and while many assumed Republicans were to blame, they were frequently the victims of attacks. British soldiers and what were called separation women, whose husbands were serving at the front, frequently violently assaulted campaigners. Countess Markovich, who travelled to Clare, was attacked at a rally in the county town of Ennis. While Lynch himself was a formidable candidate, the party machines were in no way comparable. Sinn Féin were energised by the dozens of activists recently released from prison who flooded into the constituency. They were also able to put their divisions over the rising to one side and focus on the future. Indeed, one of the leading figures behind de Valera's campaign was none other than Owen McNeill, the man who had called off the rising on Easter Sunday. Conversely, the Home Rule candidate, Patrick Lynch, was not supported by his political allies. The party leader, John Redmond, was in mourning for his brother Willie, while other leading party figures were focused on another by-election coming up in Kilkenny City. In the end, de Valera romped home, claiming over 70% of the vote in a two-horse race, an extraordinary feat given the nature of Willie Redmond's death and the fact that de Valera had only been released from prison a few weeks previously. Eamon de Valera's election victory in Clare East in July had made it three from three for the Republican movement. Then, a few weeks later, another by-election was held, this time in Kilkenny City. This saw another veteran of the 1916 Rising, W.T. Cosgrave, stand for Sinn Féin against John McGuinness, the mayor of Kilkenny, from 1914 to 1916. In many ways, this was a test of the ultimate popularity of Republican politics. Cosgrave, a Dubliner, was an outsider in Kilkenny, and he faced a man who had dominated local politics in the city for years. However, Cosgrave, one of the rebels still in prison, easily beat McGuinness, taking over 60% of the vote. By the end of the summer of 1917, Irish newspapers were talking about an end of an era, that the Home Rule Party was on the way out. Sinn Féin had certainly arrived. That year, the party grew rapidly, recruiting over 100,000 members. There were many questions that had still yet to be resolved. Even the politics of the organisation remained vague, committing itself to independence, but also leaving an open door to the issue of Home Rule. This was somewhat resolved at a party Ordesh, or Congress, in October 1917, when Arthur Griffith stood down as president and was replaced by Eamon de Valera. A new party programme was drawn up, which advocated an independent republic. Through that dramatic year, the sense change was on its way was only strengthened by international developments. In February 1917, the world was rocked by the Russian Revolution. There hadn't been an event like this since the French Revolution of 1789. This had resulted in what seemed inconceivable a few years earlier, the abdication of Tsar Nicholas II, whose family had ruled the Russian Empire since 1613. Added to this, the French army mutinied on the Western Front that summer although news of this was suppressed. That summer also saw major strikes break out in Britain and Germany. It was increasingly clear that change was not only possible, but in one form, 
or another it was coming. While Ireland had seen major developments in terms of politics in 1917, that year also saw major developments on a military front. Indeed, in some ways, as we will see in the next episode, the island was already sliding into a war of independence. In part three of the War of Independence series, we will look at the first outbreaks of violence in 1917 and 1918. Finally, the first Q&A with Dr. Brian Hanley from Trinity College Dublin will take place in two weeks' time. If you want to ask Brian questions or participate in that Q&A, all you need to do is sign up and support the show on Patreon. That's at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. I'll be back next week with part three. Until then, Sloan. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 